Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Transit Church. Uh, please join me in reading in today's uh, scripture. That's Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Put out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions. And my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blemish in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the unward being, and you teach me wisdom in a secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear you, joy, and repentance. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hear you, haste from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your transcript and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with the willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I will give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. Be good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, in whole burnt offerings. And bulls will be offered on your altar. That's this one. Thank you. Amen. Morning, Transit Church. Morning. Good to see everybody. Let's uh, pause for a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful for the day. Thank you for um, the, the sun shining somewhere above us, for um, the rain that we had yesterday, for 
uh, new mercies and grace today. Uh, as your people, we say we need it, uh, Lord, as much as we need uh, your presence. And so, God, grace us with your presence. The psalmist uh, exclaimed that you sing over us songs of deliverance, and we're praying that today, God, that you would, uh, however we came into this building today, God, that you'd meet us where we are and that we would sense your presence, your nearness to us, but more than that, God, that you would sing us, uh, sing us through our deliverance. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Uh, one public service announcement. All right, so we know about the clicking and uh, the stuff that you're hearing. It, it's, we're not doing it on purpose. Uh, we had someone come and look at it, us being us and the church that we shared this space with, and uh, they replaced some wires and things of that nature, and it's still happening. So we need, we need an expert times two. So if you're one of those experts that knows what wires to take out and stuff like that, come, come call us. Uh, in the meantime, uh, we, uh, we ask your apolog we, uh, apologize for that. All right, so we're going to be in uh, Psalm 51 again today. Uh, we are starting our year looking at the spiritual discipline of prayer, and we're using Psalm 51 to do that. Well-known psalm about David and his sin with a woman named Bathsheba. So the last couple weeks, we've been looking at four particular lines or petitions within this psalm. And these lines put together form a prayer. In fact, the, the, obviously, most psalms, all psalms are, are prayers from the person that wrote it. And so these are the petitions that we've been looking at. It begins with the petition that we find in verse 15. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth would declare your praise. As we discussed two weeks ago, first and foremost, God's praise is not something that, that starts with us. There's this eternal, glorious praise that's happening outside of us, despite us. And as we read in Isaiah, Isaiah gets to see this beautiful, glorious vision of the glory of God happening and these eternal angelic beings praising God. And what David is asking in this psalm is that, firstly, he's acknowledging that, that praise doesn't start with him, but he's also asking God that he would be invited into that praise, that, that, that God would make it so that he can participate in that kind of praise. The second petition is found in verse 10, creating me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit in me. And here we find the simple truth that we need God to change us from the inside out. Honestly, we need, to do, we need God to do in us what we can't do for and in ourselves. Not just cleanse us and give us a new heart uh, or, or, or clean our heart, but to give us an actual new heart. And we learn in the New Testament that's what he does when we come to faith in Jesus. He gives us, God gives us a new heart. Today we're looking at the third petition. The third petition that David says comes from verse 11. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. And what sticks out particularly about this petition, and I'm speaking personally, more than the other verses to me in Psalm 51, is that this seems the most earnest. As we're reading this, we don't know the tone of voice that David is, is using when he's praying these words. We can't see the expression on his face when he's writing them down to give to the, uh, to the, the choir master. As far as we can tell, there's nothing in the literary structure that, that makes this verse stick out or, or that's highlighted, highlighted more than all the other verses in the psalm. But just 
I, I just have a feeling as we read verse 11, more than that, as we pray these words as David would have prayed them, as a, as a sinner caught in the, the grips of his own sin, as a real person like David, I think verse 11 is the most earnest because David is basically praying, God, don't leave me. God, don't leave me. I think every Christian at some point prays a prayer like that. You might not say those exact words. You might not say any words. It might just be the groaning of your heart, something that you sense deep within. But, but my point is simply this. Everybody needs the nearness of God. We're no less sinners than David was in, in his moments with Bathsheba. And so at some point in our life, there's a point where we're all making the same expression that David is making here. So when David prays, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me, he's literally saying, God, don't leave me. So we're going to look at this petition much like we've looked at uh, the, the first two before it, uh, particularly verse 10 last week, in two parts or categories. First, there's a truth to know, and then we want to apply that truth. And in the application of that truth, I'm suggesting that there is an experience that we, we need to have. There's a truth to know, and then there's an experience to be had. And the truth to know is that we were made for God's presence. You were made for God's presence. And so Psalm 51, 11, David mentions both the presence of God and the Holy Spirit of God. Those are connected. Uh, here's a, a key to reading the Psalms. There's a lot of parallelism. The psalmist will say one thing in one line, and he'll repeat the same thing using different words. Or he might even say it uh, positively one time, negatively the next. But what that's called literally uh, in the, uh, what do you call it, in literature, is, is parallelism. But here's the thing to know. Although it's proper to acknowledge that the Old Testament doesn't make a full disclosure of the personhood of the Holy Spirit like we understand in the New Testament, here's what we do know. David understands that his spiritual well-being depends on God's presence with him because the presence of God comes by the Holy Spirit. So that's what David's saying. He's saying, all right, Lord, I, I need your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit. Basically saying the same thing. Your presence comes by the, by the being of the Holy Spirit of God. And so we see this, this, this theme of God's presence develop throughout the entire Bible, and it starts in Genesis. Pretty much everything starts in Genesis, right? And so what do, we, what do we find in Genesis? In Genesis, the Bible tells us God created all of mankind in his image and likeness. Humanity's purpose was to image God, that we would reflect God, and that we would live our lives quorum Deo, in the face of God, which is, basically means to say that we would live our, our, our lives in the presence of God. And that was the reality in the Garden of Eden. God placed Adam and Eve in the midst of this beautiful garden. He commanded them to, to, to tend it, to work it, to keep it. And they were supposed to do that, not singularly to themselves. They were supposed to do that in fellowship with God. We see this line in, in the beginning uh, uh, lines of Genesis that Adam and Eve got to walk and talk with God in the course of their lives in the garden. But just as everything starts in Genesis Everything goes wrong in Genesis, uh, primarily Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, uh, Satan comes in the form of a serpent. He tempts Adam and Eve to disobey God by doing what God said not to do. And in that moment, Adam and Eve fall into sin. And with that sin comes a curse, actually several curses. 
One of the major parts of the curse is that Adam and Eve are exiled from the garden. The, the Bible tells us that God drove them out east of the Garden of Eden, which means that they actually lost the presence of God. They were driven out away from the presence of God, at least uh, a sense of the presence as, as they had enjoyed it in the garden with close proximity to God. It was lost. The people of God were separated from the presence of God, and sin is what brought that separation. And therefore, humanity no longer lived in God's nearness. But God, being a God of mercy and grace, he was determined to save us. And from what we see there is we see many promises of God trying to rekindle the nearness that he had with humanity. And that salvation oddly comes firstly in Genesis 3 as well. Genesis 3.15, on the heels of Adam and Eve disobeying God, on the heels of God cursing uh, the serpent and and Eve with difficulty in childbirth and the, the, the hardness of the land that would make Adam labor, God gives this promise. Theologians call this the, the Proto-Evangelion, the, the first gospel. God promises to Adam and Eve that there would be an offspring born through their loins that would crush the head of the serpent. And so here's this, this weird thing going on. Even as the world grows more and more wicked and God begins to judge the world, we simultaneously see God offering redemption. He offers a way for us. to to be near him, even though we don't deserve it. And so you see this plan of redemption unfold as God calls people who, who in and of themselves don't deserve to be near him. They don't deserve his presence, but God offers it because of his kindness, because of his mercy and his grace. And he initiates encounters with himself by revealing his presence. And I would tell you, that's the rest of your Old Testament. The rest of your Old Testament is God offering redemption to people like you and me, who don't deserve his presence, who don't deserve his nearness. And of course, we could go line by line throughout all the Bible to see where God is offering his presence, his redemption. We don't have time for that. So I'm going to give you a few snapshots. The first, that one of the most uh, prominent that we see is, is God's presence revealed to Moses as he encountered God in the burning bush in Exodus 3. Moses is doing what Moses is doing in this period of his life. He's uh, for 40 years, he's got a staff and he's shepherding sheep. And one day, as he's shepherding sheep in Exodus 3, he comes upon this bush that's glowing. I mean, can you imagine that? A glowing bush that's not being consumed. And the angel of the Lord speaks to Moses out of that and calls Moses near and then lets Moses know that he's going to commission Moses to go and set God's people free. That He's heard the cry of Israel, who are at this point in slavery in Egypt, and he's going to use Moses to, to deliver them. And then God says, take your shoes off, Moses, for this is, this is holy ground. What's the Lord doing? He's allowing Moses to come in his presence and to come near. God's always drawing us near. And then we have another event, the, the Exodus. The Exodus is, firstly, God, through Moses, performing miracles that frees Israel from slavery in Egypt. 400 years of slavery. But the Exodus actually would would encompass Israel's whole journey through the wilderness and towards the promised land. And so one of the primary ways that we see God's presence through their journey, through the journey of the Exodus, is that he appears in uh, a pillar of cloud by day to lead them. 
and a pillar of fire by night to give them light, Exodus 13. And what we learn about that, that cloud, that pillar of cloud and that pillar of fire, it's not just cloud and fire. It's actually the glory of God. The glory of God has come into their presence, in their midst. More so, it was the very Spirit of God that's leading them. Perhaps the most tangible symbol of God's presence with his people was the Ark of the Covenant. Not Indiana Jones, the actual Ark, the container that, that was covered in gold. And inside it had the, the Ten Commandments, those tablets that God had written with his own hand, the, the laws of God for the people to follow. It also was the seat of God's throne in the Holy of Holies, that place where the mercy seat um, resided and where God, the, the priest could come in and plead for the mercy of, of God's people. The ark was, was more than special. It was, a, it was an artifact designed by God himself that is, the Israelites would use uh, on their conquest. When they went to battle, the priest would bring the ark and the ark would lead them against their foes. The ark was associated with the sanctuary that Solomon built. It was associated with the tabernacle that Moses made and the temple that Solomon built. It was the place of God's presence in the midst of his people. Along with that, in the days of the prophets, God manifests himself in other ways. God manifests, manifests his presence in fire. In 1 Kings 18, there's this powerful story of, of Elijah, one of the most uh, powerful prophets in all the Bible. He's, he's, he's the nemesis of a bad king by the name of King Ahab. God tells Elijah, go to King Ahab and challenge him in regards to his idolatry. Ahab had amassed uh, a bunch of uh, prophets of Baal to himself, over 400 of them, and they were leading not only Ahab astray, they were leading the whole nation of Israel astray. And so Elijah, being the confident prophet uh, that he is, that he is, that's a misnomer. Elijah wasn't confident. He was actually kind of uh, skittish. Uh, but he challenges the prophets of Baal to uh, a contest. They were going to sacrifice two bulls, lay them on an altar, and see which God, the God of Baal or the true God, Yahweh, could respond in fire. And so the prophets of Baal uh, sacrificed the two bulls. They la laid the meat on top of an altar, and they started their incantations and their chants. They actually started cutting themselves when Baal didn't respond, and to no avail. Baal never responded. And so Elijah says, all right, move over. He sacrifices the bull. He laid the meat on top of a, uh, an altar. And then he had uh, some of his servants bring four flasks of water. And he says, pour the water on top of the meat. And he says, do that three more times. And so by the time he, they finish, you've got this meat on an altar, under wood, and there's a trench of water covering all of it. And then Elijah calls on the name of the Lord, and what happens? God appears in fire. He appears in fire, and he consumes the altar, the wood, the stones under the wood, the meat. Now, why would God do something like that? God has decided that he wants his presence known amongst his people. More than that, he was, he was refuting the, the Ahab and his uh, leaning towards the prophets of Baal. On the heels of that, Elijah uh, escapes. Uh, he's escaping Ahab's wife, Jezebel, and he goes to a cave and he hides because he, he knows that Jezebel is going to try to kill him. Jezebel sends him a note. As surely as you, as you have killed the prophets of Baal, I'm going to kill you. And so he hides in a cave 
and the Lord uh, uh, sends him an angel of the Lord to protect him, to give him food, bread and water for a few days. And then God comes to him and says, Elijah, Elijah responds, yes, Lord, where are you? Why are you running? And he says, I'm afraid. Jezebel's trying to kill me. And then the Lord tells uh, Elijah to go up on the, on the mount, which basically means come out of the cave, go up to the highest point. I'm going to meet you there. And something interesting happens. God sends this horrific wind, but his presence isn't in it. And God sends an earthquake, and his presence isn't in it. And then God sends this huge storm, and his presence isn't in it. And then God comes in a whisper, and he meets Elijah there. And the point is, God wants his people to be in his presence, and he'll go to great lengths to pursue us to that end. The psalmist speak of God's presence with the worshiping community. Psalm 139, where shall I go from your, pre- from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? The prophet Ezekiel spoke of, the, uh, of Israel going into exile in terms of the glory of God or the presence of God leaving ancient Israel, leaving the temple. But he also prophesied that at some point, at the end of the exile, God's presence would come back. And so what does all this mean? I think much of the Old Testament discussion of the presence of God centers on the fact that God is he's utterly free to do whatever he wants and go wherever he wants. But he constantly chooses to be with his people and to give him life. And that brings us to this idea of uh, the, the realization of his presence in the New Testament. God manifests his presence in the person of Jesus. It's the song we sang. It's what we talk about at Christmas. Emmanuel. God with us. Matthew 1.23, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Very familiar verse, John chapter 1, verse 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then one of my favorite verses in the Bible, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, Long ago, and at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God. Whenever you see the Bible say glory, it's talking about the manifest presence of God, such that we can sense it, sometimes so that we can see it. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, God manifests his glory in the person of Jesus, and we're able to see it. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is the promised Messiah, who's not just the the Messiah or the Savior for Israel. He's the Messiah and the Savior for the whole world, for you and me, for all of humanity. And in the advent, in the coming of Jesus, no longer was the, the, the presence of God a fire on the top of a mountain. It wasn't this fire or this pillar of cloud that we followed day in, day out, so that we could know what God wanted us to do. It's not this, this, uh, this cloud contained in an inner sanctuary somewhere that only the priest could go in and experience. The presence of God became a person like us. Jesus is God with us, John says, Matthew says, who walked among us and lived life in our shoes and dwelled in our details. Jesus is and was the presence of God realized, and he looked us right in the face. 
People touched him and talked to him and heard him. Jesus was straightforward about what he was doing. He was sent by God, not just to represent God, but to be God amongst us, the very presence of God in our midst. He said that to see him was to see God the Father. To be in his presence was to be in the presence of God. And then on the night when Jesus was crucified, here's what he told his disciples. He said, I'm going to send you the helper, the helper. I'm going to send you my Holy Spirit. He's, he's going to be sent to you, and he'll be with you forever. And so after Jesus' death and his resurrection, but before his ascension, Jesus tells the disciples again, he would send the Spirit to live with his people and be the actual presence of God with them. If you read your Bible, you know the Holy Spirit has really been active from the beginning to the end of your Bibles. Since the world began and all the times in between, he's at work in the people of God in the Old Testament. But what Jesus is talking about here when he talks about the Holy Spirit coming is that it's going to be utterly different. Because this time the Spirit was going to be poured out on all of God's people, young and old, male and female. Everyone that would receive him, he's going to pour his spirit out on them. Better than a fire on the top of a mountain, better than a cloud in an inner sanctuary. Now the presence of God was going to dwell within us by the spirit of God. In John's gospel, Jesus says, when the Holy Spirit comes, God is going to make his home in everyone who trusts in him. And then on the day of Pentecost, we see that, that, that glory happening. The 120 disciples are in the upper room. They're praying, fasting, they're waiting on God, and then he comes. He comes in the form of fire on top of their heads, and then he indwells them. The Spirit of God in them becomes their dwelling place. It's the presence of God realized. Later, Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 3, the Holy Spirit within us is the presence of God who even now makes us the temple of God. We as God's people because God's Spirit is in us, we are God's dwelling place, which means right here, Transit Church, right here, right now, where we all sit, God's Spirit is here. His presence is here, dwelling amongst us. God's Spirit is here, dwelling amongst us, not because we're in a building and we call it church. God's Spirit is here, His presence is amongst us, because you're here. You are His temple. You are where he dwells. Where you go, he goes. Amen? His spirit is where his people are. And when you leave, guess what? The presence of God leaves with you, and it goes wherever you go. And that's the importance of church. Why do we gather? We gather because God tells us to gather. But we gather because oftentimes, there's an increased sense of the presence of God because we're all, we all have the indwelling spirit with us and he's coming with us. And there's an expectation in your heart that you're going to meet God. And when we all come with that expectation, he shows up. He's here. But it's also the very reason why we tell you that you are the, 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 the image of God wherever you go, that you're his witnesses, as, as, as Jesus would say in the Great Commission, that where you go, you're a representative of God and you have his spirit with you and you're representing him. 
not in subtle ways, but in overt ways, the presence of God in you to the world that, that's around you, where you work, where you play, amongst your neighbors, when you go to eat, wherever you go to eat. The Bible would also say that the Holy Spirit, the presence of God, never leaves us. And that's why Jesus says in the Great Commission, Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Uh, the Holy Spirit with us means that no matter where you go, no matter where we end up, whether it's the highest heights or the lowest of lows, God is going to be with you. He won't leave you. God will be with his people, and that's what heaven will be. That's what heaven's going to be. You with God, God with you in perpetuity. John's God, John's, John the Revelator says in Revelation 21, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. So sum all that up. What am I saying? You were made for God's presence. You're the very container he is always meant to dwell in. That's what God intended way back in Genesis in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. It's what God accomplishes through the gospel of his son. And that's what David is talking about. You're like saying, well, David didn't say all that. True. But that's what he meant. When he asked God not to take his presence from him and to, 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 to not take the Holy Spirit away from him as well. But here's the thing. Just knowing that is not enough. Like that, that's, that's pretty good theology about the presence of God and the, the Holy Spirit working throughout the, the story of redemption. But you can know that. And, and not have it operate in your life. And so that's where we're, we want to go next. We want to apply this. Uh, there's not just something to know. There's an experience to be had. And guess what the experience is? It's, it's to experience the nearness of God. The idea of nearness in Scripture is, is replete. We see it in many places. I, we're going to stick, stick with the Psalms here for a few minutes. Psalm 73 is one of my favorite Psalms. I know I say that about, about a lot of verses, don't I? All right. You should be saying that about a lot of verses, too. Psalm 73, verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I've made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Obviously, that's not a psalm of David. If you look in your Bible, uh, underneath the, the title, that's a psalm of Asaph. Asaph wrote a number of psalms. Uh, but I believe if, if, if God had given David the, the, the time to write those words, he would have written something very similar. The presence of God is something that David had experienced. It's something that he known and felt and tasted. And when I said earlier that, I think this is probably one of the most earnest prayers that David is praying, I'm saying that because he's asking not to be deprived of what he just had justly forfeited. See, David gave up the nearness to God that he had endeared. Unlike any other king, unlike most people that walked the earth at that time, David knew the Lord. He knew him intimately. And so this is a desperate cry for, for God's forgiveness, firstly, as a result of, of David's sorrow for his sin with Bathsheba. And I can't help but think that very likely David, David is he's recalling 
what happened to Saul, the, the, the king, the first king of Israel who uh, David got to be, get close to. Saul had blatantly disobeyed God in a number of ways. And what did Saul do? He sought to rationalize what he had done. And so David is thinking about what happened to Saul. God actually took the spirit from Saul. More than taking the spirit from Saul, the presence of God, he actually gave Saul a tormenting spirit such that at, uh, at certain times, Saul would like, just be weird as if an evil spirit had come upon him and was controlling him. And that really was the introduction of David to Saul. David was an instrument, uh, instrumentalist, a musician, and he played the harp, and he would come and play songs and sing songs to Saul. And so David, recalling what happened to, to Saul, he's likely saying, like, Lord, I've experienced your presence. I've experienced your nearness, and I don't want to happen to me what happened to King Saul. And I think every Christian at some point is going to be in a place like that. Maybe you haven't done the thing that David did, but our sin is no different than David's. And so we all need God in the same way. In fact, I think that's the worry of this verse, isn't it? We read this verse, and the question that many of us have is, when David prays, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me, is this verse teaching the possibility that the Holy Spirit might abandon me under the right circumstances? Is there something that I can actually do that might be so bad that I lose the Holy Spirit? Of course, a lot of people have asked, asked that question. Uh, there's a lot of people that have answered that question. Uh, I'm going to give you my take, um, which is going to be a scriptural take. Um, here's the thing. In the Old Testament, God's Spirit normally didn't come to dwell in people permanently. Uh, give me, give me, let me give you some examples. When you think about Samson in the, the book of Judges, uh, Samson is one that, uh, that operated by the Spirit, but the Spirit, would, the Bible says, come upon him. He would actually shake himself in times of trauma or, or turmoil when, he need, when God needed him to be the, the judge and the deliverer of, of Israel. Uh, there was some uh, kind of a miracle thing going on with his uncut hair, but Saul, uh, the, the Spirit of God would come on him and he would have great, uh, great feats of strength and he would be able to destroy the enemies that came to him and toward Israel. We can see the same thing in the prophets of Israel. Uh, the prophets weren't, um, they weren't habitual carriers of God's presence. How did God come to them? They, they saw God through the angels of God. God put words in their mouth, and they spoke those words, okay, on behalf of God. And so the Spirit of God didn't dwell in them permanently. It came upon them in moments that they could do the things of God. However, this is what the New Testament teaches. The New Testament teaches that when the Holy Spirit indwells us at our conversion, say, you at some point hear the gospel, you are reminded that you are a sinner that needs a Savior, and you put your faith, your trust in Jesus, what happens is we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, and this gift of the Spirit is permanent. And there's a lot of things that we can do with the Holy Spirit. We can grieve the Holy Spirit. We can quench the Holy Spirit. We can resist to a degree the Holy Spirit. We can ignore the influence of the Holy Spirit. But guess what God won't do? God doesn't take the Holy Spirit from you. John's, uh, John's Gospel, John 14 
Jesus promised that the gift of the Holy Spirit would be with us forever. That's what he says in verse 15. Paul later says in Romans 8, verse 37 to 39. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I like the idea that Paul says nothing. Guess what nothing means in the English language? Nothing, right? Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So as followers of Jesus in whom the Holy Spirit dwells, we shouldn't have the concern that David voices here. We don't pray this prayer the same way David prays it. But when we hear David's heart-wrenching prayer, we do need to be reminded of, of this one thing. We need to be reminded that our sin can distance us from God and make God's nearness seem absent. Does God leave us? Absolutely not. How do we know? Because the promise of Scripture that we receive in faith says God won't leave us nor forsake us. Can we distance ourselves from God? Definitely. How do we do that? A number of ways. And so here's the question I want to explore for just a few minutes, and then we'll end with this. How do you and I cultivate nearness with God? Let me tell you, there's a number of people that have answered this question. There's a number of religions. There's a number of denominations in evangelicalism that have answered this question. The Pentecostals and the Charismatics, I'm not picking on them. I am one of them, all right? They would tell you, you just need more of the Holy Spirit. The, the mystics would tell you, you just need to be more con contemplative. Mystics, Catholics, um, Episcopalians, those who uh, focus on the inward self, meditation, and things of that nature. Just be more contemplative. I'm going to tell you... Uh, the Psalms give us an idea of what it means to cultivate nearness to God. Let's look at Psalm 73 one more time. Verse 27, For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who's unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near. I've made, it, I've made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. I, I think the psalmist is giving us not the answer, but an answer. And in fact, let me go back. Are the Pentecostals, the Charismatics, the, the mystics, are, are all those people wrong? Absolutely not. I would tell you, you do need more Holy Spirit. I would say it differently. I said you need to be continually filled with the Holy Spirit. I would tell you, I, I'm, late, I'm learning late in my Christian life that the mystics are actually right. One of the ways that we can get closer to God is read the, the writings of people who've gone long, who, who died long ago because they had a knack for understanding the contemplative, slowing ourselves down and uh, not trusting our inward life, but going inward to find God. And then, of course, the, the reformers, of, of which I am as well, would tell you that there are means of grace. There are things that we can do habitually that if we do them uh, in faith and with fervor, that we can grow close to God. To God. And oftentimes the thing that draws, draws us away from God is we're doing nothing. Like we're not doing anything. Okay, so they're not wrong. But here's what the psalmist is telling us. He's telling us three things. He's saying, stay faithful. He's saying, stay near. And then he's saying, make God your refuge. I'm going to cover those 
in that order. Stay faithful, stay near, make God your refuge. When the, when the psalmist is saying here, he says, uh, you put an end to everyone who's unfaithful to you. So that's a negative perspective of it. I'm making that more positive. He's saying, stay faithful. When the psalmist says, uh, don't be unfaithful, he's likening that to the covenant of marriage. What is unfaithfulness? It's, it's you not adhering to vows. It's not, you being, uh, it's not you carrying through with allegiance or duty. The Bible sees your relationship with God as a covenant, as very similar to the covenant of marriage. And so when you're unfaithful, you're not abiding by the covenant that you have agreed to. That's unfaithfulness. And so let's say you're here this morning and you've been unfaithful to God in some way. You've done something that God says you shouldn't do. You feel dirty. Maybe something's been done to you. Okay? In all those ways, if you've been unfaithful and God's presence seems far off, the, 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 the psalmist assures us there's a way back to him. And actually, we read this in Psalm 51. David shows us to us. He showed it to us last week. He showed it to us in verse 10 a few weeks ago. Here's what the psalmist says. Firstly, he says, flee to God for mercy. We're going to go look in Psalm 51 real quick. I know we haven't unpacked all these verses, but that, this, this, this psalm is very useful to us. David saying, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash away thoroughly, uh, from, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. What's David saying? He's saying there's a God who offers grace and mercy and we can flee to him and he'll receive us. Not only that, David knew that he had to own his sin fully. Verse three, for I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what's evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgments. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. So own our sin fully. Thirdly, he would say, cling to Jesus alone, whose blood can wash you and make you clean. Verse seven, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my transgressions. And then that leads us back to the verse that we looked at last week. That we should turn and deal with the root of the matter, which is our hearts. What does David pray there? He says, create in me a clean heart. In other words, he's saying, all right, Lord, I, I've exhausted myself of what I can do. So right now, I need a miracle. A miracle. What's that miracle? I need you to come with your creative power and renovate my heart. Like, take the one I got out, give me a new one. And I think we see that in David's plight. If you read the story of David and Bathsheba, then what David is doing is he's, he's thinking about all that he did that, uh, that disavowed him from God. And he knows that he can only come to God from a perspective of mercy. God, I need your mercy. David had messed up and he didn't deserve even to be in God's presence. He didn't deserve the nearness of God, but he needed it. He needed it badly. And so he knew he couldn't go on without it. You know, a lot of times our, our tendency is when we know that we have 
when we've done something and we know that we shouldn't have done it, what do we do? We do the Adam and Eve. We, we go hide, right? Like hide behind a bush, not knowing that God sees everything. All right, Jeff, I, I see you. I, I know what you did. We go and hide, thinking that that's going to at least protect us from the, the doom, that doom and gloom that God is going to bring on us. And we do that over and against what we should do. Like, you, know, you ever seen the little kid that they get in trouble, they know they've done something they shouldn't have done, and they, they come to you, you're like the person that can save them, you, you their parent. I don't know at what age kids stop doing that. I think it's somewhere between two and three. Like they, they, like, they get in trouble and they know they're in trouble beyond three. But before that, they get in trouble and they immediately come to you, the person that can save them. And I, you know, I wish we would all do that more. And anyway, here's what David says. To stay faithful, we get real with God. We repent and seek his mercy that he might give us a clean heart. Here's the second thing. We stay near. How, how do you stay near? Um, so I'm not going to give you any, any, um, anything innovative, right? And you guys don't need that. Like, this is a, you don't need gimmicks. You don't need programs. You don't need three steps or five steps. You don't even need two steps, right? You, you don't need an emotional high. You need spiritual disciplines. Like, no, Jeff, don't say that. Not the spiritual disciplines. You need to read the Bible. Pray, be in community with other Christians. Seek to be discipled by someone farther along in the faith than you. Come to church and be amongst God's people. Experience the means of grace and the preached word and receiving the sacraments. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. And if I can give you a shameless plug, that's what we're doing in Foundations. For some of you, you've been coming to church a long time, and you have never immersed yourself neither in spiritual disciplines or just the basics of the faith. Reading your Bible, uh, learning to have a devotion, memorizing scripture, learning how to share your faith. Those are the foundations of your faith. And if you haven't, um, if you haven't learned to do those things, then you're like going to be hit and miss in your Christian life. And hit and miss in Christian life doesn't, um, is very, I don't want to say it doesn't, it's, it's very unlikely to produce for you the nearness of God that you probably want, but that you definitely deserve. Stay faithful, stay near. Here's the third thing, make God your refuge. Some of you here, you have not messed up. You haven't done anything wrong. You're, you're as faithful to God today as you've been throughout your Christian life. You're not tempted to do wrong things. It doesn't mean you don't sin, but sometimes we can go through trauma or we can have hardship or suffering that still makes us seem like we're distant from God. And so here's what the psalmist tells us. It's not just when you've messed up, but when you're in a season of, of intense suffering that God can seem distant. And so what do we do? Well, I think we, we do the things that we do even when God seems near. We, we speak to God. We, we, we ask why. Why am I experiencing what I'm experiencing? Uh, Lord, what are you doing? Um, why are you doing what you're doing? We might ask people that we trust and know, what do you think? What do you think God is, what is happening in my life? 
But here's the thing with that. Even in our asking why, even as we're seeking answers from God and other people as to why God might seem distant, eventually we come to a place, at least I hope you do, where, you're, where you mainly want and need God's nearness. And here's the truth. We need God's spirit more than we need his answers. And so if life is difficult for you and you've not overtly done anything wrong, focus on this. Focus on attaining God's spirit, his presence, more than you focus on getting the answer why. In a place of hardship and suffering, our most earnest prayer is not for an explanation of our circumstances, it's for God not to leave us. Because you know that wherever, whatever it is that he brings, up, brings us to, whatever the situation is, we know that as long as he's with us, eventually everything is going to be all right. We all have to trust that if God's spirit is with us, he's at work, that he's doing something. And whatever that is, we know that God is humbling us so that we would learn more to rely not on ourselves and what we know or what we can do, but on God who is our refuge. What's a refuge? It's a place that I can find shelter. It's a place that I can hide. It's a place I can hunker down just for a moment and be safe. And God is that for us. And so when we sin, I think, here's what God wants. When we sin or when we, just, when we, when we don't feel God near, I think he wants two things from us. I think, firstly, he wants our humility. He wants us to come with us Come to him in humility and, and confess that, Lord, I don't even know if you're around today, this week, this month, this year, but, but I'm here and I wish you were near. I think he wants to, us to come to him in faith. You know, sometimes, don't take this uh, the wrong way. Sometimes we, uh, we do those habitual things. We go through the emotions in faith, knowing that God is there because God never leaves us nor forsakes us. It's, it's, it's always us that, that backs up. God doesn't back up. And so he wants our humility. He wants our faith. And so this is the kind of stuff that we pray. Look at the screen. Pray these, prayers, pray these words with me. Out loud. God, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. You are worthy of praise, and you will be praised. I want to participate in that praise. God, I need you to change me. I need you to change my heart, which means I need you to create a new one. I need you to do with my heart what only you can do. And whatever comes, please don't leave me. Tomorrow is so uncertain. Sometimes I don't know exactly how you're leading me. Sometimes I don't know exactly what you're doing. But God, be close to me, and please don't leave me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. That's how real people pray. Amen.